Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Mark, how are you doing today? Good, good, Hadi. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for being uh, part of our podcast. I'll give a quick introduction for our listener. So Mark Shahwan is the co-founder of Sarwa, which is an online platform that makes investing in global markets simple and affordable for people in the Middle East. Sarwa has raised around 25 million from notable investors like Middle East Venture Partners. Mark, tell us, how was life before Sarwa in the Middle East? Before Sarwa in the Middle East, you mean in general, like within uh, the investment landscape? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So before that, I would say people had to navigate quite a complex and what can be an overwhelming environment where you had a lot of brokerages that were catering and advertising with like complicated graphs and charts for the expert trader, which is a very small percentage of the population, as you can imagine. So if you're someone earning a decent income, you're getting your paycheck and you want to put it to work or you're investing, no one was really talking to you and encouraging you to do that. Because on the other hand, the banks here, they ranked quite poorly in terms of client experience. They were known to be product pushers. So you can show up to a branch. And when I would ask someone for a banker for investment advice or anything, they would recommend gold without really understanding my goals, my preferences. So that's really the gap I would say before we started, we saw a lot of push towards certain financial products without really understanding what, what the goals and the risk profile of the person. And we saw this is the, the gap that we wanted to bridge where we provide great expert investment advice and platform combined with the benefits of technology because it's a more accessible, convenient and has so many benefits to it. Yeah, I remember when I, you know, wanted to invest 15 years ago, the only option was, and it was, as you said, a maze to figure out how to invest in the Middle East. I had to open a bank account with Saxo Bank. Mm-hmm. So I had to send money. There's a lot of KYC. And then the app was clunky. Navigating it was difficult. And then fast forward, I came across Robinhood, which was very famous in the US, very easy, everything you can do but it's not accessible in the Middle East. And now with Sarwa, I think you've solved a pain point for maybe people who want to start investing. They haven't tried it before. They're not institutional investors, but they have like a sum of money that they want to buy stocks or buy, as you said, some FX or whatever. So very interesting. I like your brand promise because you, you mentioned one of them, which is accessibility i think it's also the ease of use of the app and the low cost part so you're more of a customer centric b2c company tell us a little bit the early strategy of how you built the trust with the early customers and how did you find them yeah i would say you touched a lot of on our value so choice uh, low cost or accessibility or what we call value there's also trust is one of them Typically, a bank has trust because of some of their spending around branches or the sales force or just because they're old. As a new firm, we don't have that luxury, so we had to create it in a different way. And we started as, first of all, as founders to really be much more active and get out of our comfort zone 
around the amount of social media presence, events, and just meeting a lot of people to share what we're doing. These are things, to be honest, we realize more in hindsight because we just had so much energy to share what we were up to. And we started to see what is the positive response that we're hearing. It was, okay, these, the Sarwa founders are working on something new. They're disrupting an industry that's been stagnant for a while. So we started to build a, tr a trust around our story and how we want to change how things are being done. Uh, media really helped us. If you're in the Middle East, specifically in the UAE, it's a really great channel because it's free, first of all. And as a financial institution, it gives you a great reach, gives you a chance to share your story as well and gives credibility. So I would say it was a combination of taking more meetings than what we maybe would take later in the early days, as well as uh, PR, but also events. I think for us, we started to do pizza nights on Tuesdays where we share the principles of investing. So think of it as investing one-on-one. -on -one. And what's really good about this kind of forum is that no one likes to, well, some people don't mind going alone, but some people will tell a friend about it. It had had a built-in virality effect as well, where every week we would do it. It was a lot of work to set up initially, but then we made it a repeatable process and it became a very good moment even as a gathering for the team where you hear people, clients that come to you bringing a plus one or some people that are just really grateful for quality content because it's tough to navigate even in, until today investment content. There's a lot of noise and a lot of people trying to push their own agenda. So we tried as much as possible to not promote Sarwa, but promote just long-term investing and be very factual with data. And I think that really helped us in the early days build trust. Amazing. How did you de-risk the early phase of Sarah? Because you're a regulated entity today. You have to yeah. get licenses. And when you want to prove product market fit, some a lot of founders start with an MVP. They have a small yeah. budget. They go out, they test it, they see the response. In your case, you had to get the license. Or did you do something else at the beginning that told you, go ahead, invest, take those licenses, especially that if I'm investing $10,000 with Sarwa, I want to make sure that Sarwa is going to be there for a while. It's not like it's not there and then where's my money? It's not protected. So how did you navigate that area? It's a really good point. I think, as you said, so we saw our, our maximum ticket really go up over the years. Initially, we would celebrate someone investing, let's say $20,000 with us and now going up to 10 million, but it took time to get that credibility, to get that ticket size. So, so the maximum ticket size acted as a way for us to gauge the trust of the brand. And in the early days, it would have been a mistake to, I think there's a mistake that can be made in FinTech, as you said, because you are regulated, you start out as a minus one to just get to zero before you can even validate your idea. So we did have a wait list, we did have like a lot of things to try to measure, our traction, but I would say the numbers were, I wouldn't say they were up to what we would want. I think a lot of founders want, we can uh, want more growth than maybe what we're seeing. So if we were to purely rely on the metrics, it was okay. It was good. But what really got us continued and, and gave us the strong validation was actually the regulation itself, or just seeing how, when we, the amount, the amount of positive feedback we would hear from someone was very powerful. It wasn't, people weren't like indifferent about using our service. They would really, really appreciate it. They would rave about it. 
and tell us this really helped me because I realized I might have started 10 years later had I not met Sarwa or had you not have a minimum that's low for me to get started. So that kind of positive reinforcement is like a good dopamine hit that would keep us uh, continue to go until eventually you have validation about product market fit that we then uh, like there's a survey I don't know if you covered it by the founder of Superhuman where you ask people like that 40% of how disappointed would you be if you no longer use Sarwa so eventually we found a way to quantify product market fit but before that it was mainly going off of the feeling that you're working on something and solving a real problem Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. Is there any acquisition strategy that has worked for you beyond the non-scalable events that you'd have done originally? Yeah, I would say a lot in um, in terms of acquisition in SEO, blog, blog posts is something that took a while to work, but then eventually it, it pays off. I think that generally paid ads, there's still a lot of room for them, especially when done well. With, we try to do we always introduce humor or something bold, different as a message with our ads, primarily on YouTube when it comes to video. And search engine marketing remains very a very good channel as well. So this is some of the repeatable things that we continue to optimize and bring down our, our acquisition cost with time. And yeah, there's just a lot of other tests that I think are decent, but we don't end up investing as much as uh, other channels. One resource that helped us was the book Traction. We've identified like 19 channels and really tried to experiment across different channels, what works, what doesn't, depending on how much time and dollars we spent. And we locked in a couple and we continue to revise it as we launch new products, as there might be a difference there. I loved the video you made. It was very funny. It's on YouTube if people want to look it up. Tell us a little bit your experience with video marketing. What worked for you? What didn't work for you? What would have you done differently? Yeah, with video, I don't think we always get it right. Sometimes we film three videos and we're always surprised or even on Slack, we put a bet which video do you think is going to win? And we think it's some of the more, a lot of the time because we're in this business, we might choose the more nuanced video, but sometimes what really works is a very simple one. Another lesson, one of my favorites was taking a stab at the traditional industry. So one thing that's popular in Dubai is you're going to get calls uh, very often or very randomly by someone trying to sell you an investment product. So we did one making fun of that interaction and we tried to mimic as much as possible the tone and without making it offensive, obviously. So humor, but touching on something that people felt and uh, worked really well. And... Yeah, I think we learned sometimes we did an unscripted video where people talk about money. That wasn't so much of a hit. We continue to learn around some more edgy concepts, some, some that are more classic. And now when we do a series, we try to make sure we have a blend so that we're not filming videos for us and for the sake of having something artistic and much more just to have something that's straightforward as well. No, absolutely. I mean, you can't know until you try. It doesn't yeah. work the first time. That's very helpful uh, to share your... Uh strategy. What has been the most challenging part of building Sarwa? I think a challenge for Sarwa or anyone building a fintech in the Middle East to learn to know about is the market size and equipping yourself so that you don't need as much scale as someone building, let's say, in the US where you have a more than 300 million population. So the challenge, I think, or also being an opportunity is now to see how do you reduce your dependency on scale 
what a lot of founders or the common messages to, in the UAE at least or in the Middle East to then expand it to Saudi Arabia and other nearby uh, markets. But in fintech, it's proven to be extremely difficult to properly expand. So that's something now where we've been adapting and making sure that for the next five years, we can continue to expand and grow at the pace we want without having so much need to expand geographically. And I think a lot of founders should, of course, make it so that they should they can expand geographically, but also do that if they win very and have a very strong brand in one market, that's enough as an end goal on its own. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. How do you design your culture at Sarwa? Hmm. I think it's through experimentation a lot, where for the first year, I would say, I wouldn't say we spent so much time designing it as much as we were just so busy building things and going live and getting our first hundred users and so forth, or first thousand. After a while, then when we were a bit more people, this is where we gathered to see, all right, if we were to define what is there today, what does that look like? What do we want to make sure we keep when we interview people? What do we want to avoid? So the first part of it, I would say a serious attempt at that was a, just defining a series of values that we're not too fussed about them, but we do use them in like critical moments like onboarding or hiring or sometimes even firing because you're able to pinpoint why it didn't work out. The person can be excellent but sometimes it's not a match when we hire someone that doesn't uh, gel well with the team and it's not an environment where they're going to succeed, especially if they're a manager. So the experimentation part, I think, comes with, I know you interviewed a DHH from 37signal. So that's, I think, reading a lot around, especially contrarian thinkers that break certain rules or uh, Ricardo Semler is another very known author and just disrupting the culture of work, I think. There are things that we experiment, we see how it works. If it does, we keep it. If it doesn't, we ditch it. And to each their own, I think, you know, we all know so many founders. I think some are more, have a culture that's much more anti-remote. Some are very remote. We tend to be on the remote side, but I respect, I think it really comes down from the founder's views so that they end up building a culture that suits what they want. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other examples of culture, but you really learn about it along the way and it evolves. Even in our last year, sometimes you never really f- figure it out. And you see a lot of very prominent CEOs or founders, like even at Netflix and so many still today publicly talk about culture because it's constantly evolving. And sometimes you're going to have an event and something that you're not a big fan of that develops and you realize you need to address it. So meetings could be part of culture where you can be more or a way of working rather, maybe that's more about heavy meetings or lighter meetings. So we experiment a lot and ultimately we see our approach is more on the lighter, like as light as possible in terms of intervening and just making it more about the work itself and trying to remove as many distractions that could create a more toxic or a culture that takes sometimes too much room. So hopefully that answers your question or makes it a bit tangible. Um, That's how we approach it. Thank you again for sharing this. This episode is sponsored by Story Pitch Decks. Startup founders, do you need a better pitch deck that stands out from the crowd and attracts investors? Listen, there's no better way to improve your pitch than by reading Keen Angle's new book, How Good Is My Pitch Deck? 
Keen has helped over 140 early-stage startups raise hundreds of millions of dollars at a rate is 40 times higher than the industry average. With Keen's proven strategies and actionable frameworks, you can transform your pitch into a multi-million dollar deck. To get your copy today, head to Amazon and search for How Good Is My Pitch Deck. What is a principle that you live by that has worked for you to become a successful entrepreneur? Trust, I would say, is the main one. I think it goes from the foundation of Sarwa where it was built out of... I've known Jad, my co-founder, since we're kids. And not that this is the reason why we work together, but that definitely was a, a, an important factor in just trusting his ability and his ethics. Our third co-founder, Nadine, she's a sister of a good friend. And our first few hires were also very... Uh, like people we trusted. So the nucleus already to start with was a very high trust environment and that really allowed us to move fast. And we continue to build on that. Not that we hired people we know, it's not a requirement at all, on the contrary, but we trust a lot of people. Sometimes you it will break from maybe putting too much trust, but we still prefer and we see much more benefit that giving full trust and if there is something to, to fix it, then operate in an environment where you need to earn it to move up and to have more autonomy. Amazing. That leads me to a follow-up question on co-founder risk, because it's one of the risks that a lot of startups you know, face and they end up not working out. So other than the trust criteria, what are certain things you would look at when you're choosing a co-founder, especially that you're, you have two co-founders, not one? Yeah, I think track record, attitude. So... You also get to see how you work together over an extended period of time without first rushing into it. So with Jai, even though we've known each other for a very long time, it took us like a year where this was a side project to see our style, our dedication, and how we handle certain situations. And with Nadine, same thing, we didn't jump into it right away. We did. We had almost a trial period where we got to know each other, we saw the discipline, the hard work, and then... Once it really worked, did we move forward? It doesn't mean that it's a once and done thing. Of course, I think, especially in the early days is where I would expect things to go sour when there's so much stress on founders and it's a smaller team, it's a more resource-constrained environment. There's a lot of moments that are critical to get right and solve for the, like to attack the problem and not the person. So yeah, it's a journey, but very, very rewarding and you can get a lot more done, obviously, when you're more people that are complementary and have different styles. And we get to know each other's strength as well, so that in certain situations, we'll, we'll know who should be there and how to play to, to each other's strength. If we go back to the teenage years of Mark, what were dinner topics with your parents? <laughs> what were dinner topics? Don't drink. <laughs> I think my mom was already worried about teenage uh, teenagers. I actually left. I actually left when I was fourteen to Canada to live with my brother. We had unfortunately the war in Lebanon, two thousand six. So dinners were very very special, and we cherished a lot of the moments together because my parents also stayed back home in Lebanon. They were filled with yeah, trying to make the most of the time together. Very deep around. I'm trying to remember specific topics, but I've always seen my parents as like good, also good friends uh, that we discuss a lot of uh, like my progression, my studies. I think, yeah, a lot of focus on the basics being there. For my parents, they really valued education 
a family and then to remember a specific conversation i have to say is a bit challenging but very fun memories <laughs> thank you for sharing this one last question what's next for sarwa I think for Sarwa, what's next is to become even more of a one-stop shop. So we progress from being what's called a robo-advisor, where we manage the wealth on behalf of people and help them with that, to becoming now a trading platform, having crypto and a savings account, like a savings platform as well, by partnering with banks. So for us is to continue to see what are some of the other products or services that are left unserved, underserved by traditional players, that we can bring on to our platform so that you don't need to rely on so many providers and have your wealth fragmented. Amazing. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Mark, for stopping by. Where can people reach you? Mainly on LinkedIn, I would say, is where I'm active. Excellent. We'll keep everything in the show notes so people can reach out to you. Thank you again and good luck. Thank you, Hadi. That's all. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.